1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like drains, simplicity, and caution. Right, Sam, I think
2: you've got to be very cautious about doing any of those. I think <laughs> instead you should think about doing rats, plats, and flats, mats, gnats, and pats. Pats is a sort of. I don't know what pats is, patting on the head. A oh, yes. canine approval. Yes. I think I'd, I'd like to do fleas. I'd like to do sleep, and I'd like to do distance. The history of oh. distance. However, we've done dreams, haven't we? We have done dreams and a bed. Yeah, S- I know. And sleep and nightmares. We did and the nightmares. nightmares and cheese. Mm. Uh, but but sleep could be something very different. Yes, that's true. But we that's have done true. teenagers' bedrooms as well, but that wasn't about sleep, was it? Well, no. Well, maybe hmm. we'll have to. We'll have to think about. We'll have to put our heads together and think about all of these. But for the moment, we will be following the. Do you like what I did there? We'll be following <laughs> the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam? Who knew? that the history of teenagers is in fact all about the lost generation in China during the Cultural Revolution. It's about oral history. It's about teenagers' bedrooms and anthropology. It's about 20th century US pop culture and high schools. Or that the history of cliques is in fact all about factions at the court of Henry VIII. It's about the rise and fall of Anne Boleyn. Of course it is. It's about the cabal ministry of Charles II, the magic circle, including a magic teapot that will produce any alcoholic beverage that you like. It's also about US 20th century pop culture. It's about conspiracy theories. And, of course, it's about the French Revolution. Mm. There we go. Everything's
1: about the French Revolution. Of course it is. And gloves. Yes. Yeah. It is
2: all about gloves. <laughs> Loving the <laughs> gloves me, still.
1: Uh, let me introduce my, my fellow presenter. I'll just say that if history itself was on trial in the great courtroom of the present. This man, this very man, would be none other than the presiding judge, the Right Honourable Daybell. Sounds good, does it not? He would whip the embodiment of history into shape when history started misbehaving, singing, dancing, streaking, such as the contempt of history for its own trial, for judgment itself, for being held accountable. This man would verily hold history in contempt of court and force it to respect his wisdom and judgment. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British. at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, and I feel very
2: welcome to the show today. Uh, However, you may well all be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping James co-pilot these episodes? Well, let's just say that if he were a contempt-related historian, he'd only be the very Opposite of a contemptuous, self-congratulatory, aloof politician type. No mention of names since this is a politically non-partisan show. So empathetic is he of his historical subjects. So just and caring is he in the judicious way that he sifts the evidence of the past. The man is entirely without contempt for our great discipline of history. Yes, you've guessed it, it's your friend and mine, the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. (laughs) It is me. Hello, everyone. Um, Today, we are doing a very
1: interesting one. We're doing the history of contempt, and this was suggested to us, was it not, It
2: was. It was suggested by a very kind Australian listener. So, David, thank you for reaching out to us. We were very touched, and we were so taken by your idea that we decided to run with it. And I'm going to start with the example that you gave us, because I thought it was Brilliant. Uh, We got this lovely email um, from David. Um, He said, I've found just by chance this amazing um, uh, topic for you guys. I I hope you'll do it. Um, He's been reading The Chance of Politics, a 1997 collection of memoirs, diary entries and pen portraits of Australian politics in the 1960s and 17s by Paul Hasluck who was an Australian statesman who served as the 17th Governor-General of Australia and was in office from 1969 to 1974. Prior to that, he was a Liberal Party politician, held ministerial office. Um, As well as being a politician, he was also a historian. He lectured at the University of Western Australia, where one of my very two of my very dear friends' uh, work, and uh, he was one of the authors of the official history of Australia in the Second World War. So he's been at, he'd been minister in conservative Australian governments before the mysterious disappearance of Harold Holt, who was prime minister, who in 1967 disappeared while swimming. This is something that Bill Bryson talks about in his in his book about Australia, down under, where he's talking about the sort of the the sheer size of the place and the way in which you know people can just sort of walk off and disappear um, anyway back to back to Hasluck, uh, since that's who we 're talking about, he, he unaccess, unsuccessfully ran for leadership, uh, which went to john Gordon um, and his main rival uh, was William McMahon, Um, and a man for whom he describes he had unalloyed contempt. And he writes about uh, McMahon in very scathing terms in 1968. He writes, uh, "'Contempt is a hard feeling towards another person.' I suppose it may mean a failure in understanding. It certainly means a failure in balanced appreciation. It more widely removes one person from another than does scorn or hatred or even physical repugnance. McMahon is the only person with whom i've had close association for a number of years whom I have found contemptible, and he writes there there's much more um, in nineteen seventy one he finds himself swearing McMahon in as prime minister um and and he he writes the following: I confess to a dislike of McMahon. The longer one is associated with him, the deeper the contempt for him grows, and I find it hard to allow him any merit disloyal, devious, dishonest, untrustworthy, petty, cowardly, all these adjectives have been weighed by me, and I could not in truth modify or reduce any one of them in its application to McMahon. I find him a contemptible creature, and this contempt and the adjectives I have chosen to apply to him sum up defects that, in my estimation of other people, cannot be balanced by... Better qualities. For example, if I allow a busy industry and pertinacity in a cause, I cannot forget that it is the industry and persistence of a man applying himself often to a mean purpose. Contempt is a hard feeling towards another person. I've read this already, but I'll I'll read it again in context. I suppose it may mean a failure in understanding. It certainly means a failure in balanced appreciation. It more widely removes one person from another than does scorn or hatred or even physical repugnance. McMahon is the only person with whom I've had a close association over a number of years whom I've found contemptible. It might not have been so. I can remember an early time when the unkindest thought I had of him was to think him something of an oddity, a rather funny little man. There was a time when I might have sought to find good points, for he's a pathetic figure, obviously an incomplete and... Sorry, little person, small in stature, ill-developed, extremely sensitive about his lack of manly qualities and sometimes ingenious in his bid for liking. My God, that's the knife in there. Um, But his vanity and deviousness in self-advancement go beyond a point where he can continue to excuse them or make allowances for them out of sympathy. I finish with contempt. I do not respect him and do not trust him. There is, this is my favourite bit, there is something pitiable after all about this puny little fellow with his platform soles and his padded shoulders always trying to present the image of a fit and vigorous sportsman. I wonder if he deceives himself or whether in private there come the sad or infuriating moments when his conceit breaks and he exposes himself to himself. There is never any sign in public of any breach in his confidence, although he does expose sometimes the mechanics and contrivances of his self-advancement. My God, that is utterly excoriating. Could you think of anyone to apply that to in your own life, Sam? (laughs) I can't tell you that.
1: (laughs) No, no, no. Nor could I. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Amazing. Uh, What a great place to start with.
2: Well, thank um, David. Thank you so much for that. That is an utterly brilliant prompt to get us thinking about the history, the unexpected history of contempt, what it means, and how it may manifest itself in the past. Where do you go yeah. from there, Sam Willis?
1: Well, uh, I uh, immediately thought about contempt of court um, ah, because, of course, um, I was my wife and I were just sitting down and, and also talking about the, um, the the insurrection in Washington which led to them you know sacking sacking congress uh, just just a, a matter of months or weeks ago now and the the clear contempt that these people had for the authority of congress even though it was kind of disguised in love for it it was very very strange um a, a funny mixture of saying of thinking that they were doing the right thing um because of of a respect for uh the the constitution and for democracy and actually uh it being the complete opposite for that and it, it um reflecting complete contempt. And there's obviously an interesting history there. Um and I also thought about it in terms of imperialism again. I keep going back to imperialism at the minute. Oh, um, and and contempt for in Indigenous inhabitants of wherever it was being colonised, and that uh, it, it is it is a a part of and a story of and a chapter of the broader history of racism.
2: Um, oh, I love that. I, too, wow. was having a chat with my wife last night, Mrs Daybell, um, who in, in our house is the fount of all knowledge and far better than I at this whole histories of the unexpected lark. And I said to her, I said, I've got to do something on contempt tomorrow. One of our listeners has come up with a brilliant idea. She said, that's fantastic. And, you know, James, it's all about courtly love. And it's about the trope of the disdainful mistress. So mm. I'm going to be talking about that as well as uh, contemptuous faces. Hmm, I like that. Facial uh, mm. Let me just talk, talk, start a little bit about, you know,
1: contempt for authority, um, contempt for, for legal systems and the way you behave. Um, all sorts of wonderful examples throughout history. The trial of Saddam Hussein is a cracker, 2005 to 2006. Um, and if you uh, actually just briefly study the history of it, it is characterised by... Um, the Saddam Hussein and his seven co-defendants and dozens of lawyers um, constantly disparage the judges they're interrupting witness testimony with outbursts Um, they turn cross-examination into diatribes. they walk out regularly they boycott it they don't acknowledge the authority of the court Uh, it's actually you know something that that has been done now I talk about it I'm thinking about war crimes trials for war criminals in the Balkans wars as well um it's quite popular this idea at the moment because of the Netflix series, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Um, so, if anyone's seen that, uh, I, I, this is this is what I'm going to be talking about. If not, you should go and go and um, go and watch it. Very, very interesting indeed. And this is to do with contempt on so many levels. The more I was initially going to talk about it in terms of contempt of court, but then it became clear that actually the whole chapter of the Vietnam War allows you to talk about a large number of different types of contempt. Um, but particularly what what well what's happening here is you've got um eight people then it actually becomes seven who are being tried and um they are being tried for being essentially leaders of the anti vietnam war movement, and they regularly are rubbishing the legal system. They refuse to rise when the judge enters. They're outbursts, there's profanities, there's swearing, there's shouting, there's laughing, dressing up, challenging, ruling the judge um, and uh, persisting in in motioning the judge as well, which is is very interesting indeed. Um, The trial gains huge public notice simply because of the courtroom antics of... Of the defendants, a really remarkable moment where actually they just they do not recognise or acknowledge the authority under which they're being tried. tried. Uh, very interesting on the first day of the trial. It's all all uh, mixed up with racism as well. You've got the judge who's Julius Hoffman. He refuses to issue a postponement so that Bobby Seal, um, so he's black. Um, he refuses to postpone the trial um, because uh, Seal's attorney he's actually got a gallbladder. Uh, As having a gallbladder operation. And Seal says this to the judge If I am consistently denied this right of legal defense counsel of my choice, who is effective by the judge of this court, then I can only see the judge as a blatant racist of the United States court. And this winds up Hoffman. Hoffman rebukes Seal. But it's what's fascinating is that you know people that are really standing up and they are saying what they think. They're not they're not mincing around here, and it's all tied up with the politics of of Vietnam and and issues of freedom and racism. Um, so we've got uh, another another <laughs> another defendant, Tom Hayden. He's uh, giving a clenched fist salute. Abby Hoffman is blowing kisses at the jurors um and the a few days later the defendants try to drape the council table with a north vietnamese flag in celebration of vietnam moratorium day um he gets uh, gets the, the judge very cross with them Again, um, they throughout the trial they're refusing to rise. Um, two of the defendants, on occasions, this is Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. They actually wear judicial robes into the court, but pinned with a yellow, the, the Jewish yellow star, um, which became famous in, in the Second World War, um, suggesting that uh, that Judge Hoffman was running his courtroom like the courts of Nazi Germany. Um, The most serious disorder happened a couple of weeks into the trial. And um, Hoffman, the judge, he learned that a few minutes before the beginning of the session, Bobby Seale had addressed the audience in the courtroom, telling them that if he were attacked, they know what to do, Uh, which I thought was really interesting, very reminiscent of Trump, actually, and um, telling his supporters that they, they knew what to do. Anyway, um Hoffman responds by he has Seal bound and gagged. He literally has him tied up and physically gagged. And then uh, William Kustner, who is the defense counsel, then tells off the court saying this is no longer a court of order, your honor, this is a medieval torture chamber. So this fascinating example of um of, of a trial uh, going um becoming seriously famous for the the utter uh, lack of respect um, for these people who are, who are campaigning against the Vietnam War. But there are all sorts of other really interesting examples of contempt in Vietnam. So there was there was a huge amount of contempt more broadly in America for anti-Vietnam protesters. Um, you've got a, a draft dodgers um, are being imprisoned, they're being arrested, there's uh, several killings, um, four students are killed at um, Kent State University. But then you've got contempt from the other the other perspective as well. You've got um, people who hold the US government in contempt, which is where the trial comes in, the government and the whole legal system. Um, they, they have complete contempt for for these people who are making them go and fight a war, which they don't think needs fighting. Uh, and then, weirdly, that's kind of reflected in the fighting of the Vietnam War itself, where there's lots of examples of soldiers um, who have complete contempt for their officers and there are an estimated one thousand incidents during the war—a thousand—which of what was became known as fragging, which was the deliberate killing, uh, or, or attempted killing by a soldier of a fellow soldier, and usually a superior officer. And it became called fragging because they would often be done using a fragmentation grenade. Um, the idea being that that um, the death was caused to a certain extent by accident, or uh, not not as conscious as a as a straight execution. Or an assassination. Um, so, all very, very interesting. What's going on there in the Vietnam War? Um, thinking about how many people were actually um, signed up to to fight, and how many of them were poor, how many of them were African American, and then what percentage of that? So, many, many more poor soldiers died. Many more African American soldiers died. The percentages were, were uh, didn't reflect um, didn't reflect society in any way. And it all kind of bubbles over. So a great deal of contempt caused by um, one of the most um, extraordinary wars of the 20th century.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. That's stamps.com. Code Program.
2: Brilliant, Sam. I want to go in a very in a very different way, but riffing on that. I mean what we've seen so far is a very powerful written expression of contempt. You've talked here about physical actions of contempt in different ways. And I want to talk about the way in which contempt can be seen as an emotion. And the way that that manifests itself in facial expressions, so giving people a look of contempt now you all know you all know how to do that a slight raise of the eyebrow, a slight sort of you know wrinkling of the of the lips that sort of show your utter disdain for everyone, so what i 'm interested in then is the way in which contempt and the emotion of contempt manifests itself in facial expressions and I have been reading as one does the the Journal of motivation and emotion and i 've been reading some work by a brilliant uh, psychologist um. Called Paul Ekman, who's one of the pioneers, an American psychologist, um, and he's one of the pioneers in the study of emotions and their relation to facial expressions. And we've talked about earlier examples of this in our, in our book, where we've looked at the electrocution of the face. But Ekman, uh, working with a, a colleague, uh, Friesen, wrote an article uh, some while back in 1988 called The Universality of a Contempt Expression, colon, a Replication. And what this does is it almost suggests a sort of trans-historical, pan-cultural understanding of facial expressions of contempt. And what he did was he conducted two different experiments with uh, with... That looking at people across 10 different cultures that were Western and non Western. And they studied, they worked with the citizens of West Sumatra in Indonesia. And these people uh, they'd been working with for a long time, so they've got to know them. And what they did was they showed them a series of photographs of people from different countries. So there were some Japanese people, American, and there were some Indonesian people as well. And what they did was they asked them to classify what different expressions of emotions these pictures were showing. So alongside contempt were disgust, anger, happiness, sadness, fear, surprise. And the... Uh, contempt was supposed to be represented by, and I quote from the article here, an expression in which the corner of the lip is tightened and raised slightly on one side of the face or much more strongly on one side of the other signalled contempt. What was amazing about this was that all of them picked the write photos of contempt across all cultures. And then what they did was they got some Indonesian people uh, from from West Sumatra and they got them to make this face So, and then they had photographs taken of them and then those photographs in a second experiment were shown to the same observers and they guessed that these were photographs that suggested, these facial expressions that suggested contempt. So we have then this sort of sense of this sort of pan-historical sort of uh, understanding of, and pan-cultural understanding of contempt. Now this takes a new direction. Uh, It has a sort of gendered direction. Uh, And I was led in this direction by another journal article. I was reading my Feminism and Psychology um, uh, I'm never out of that journal, um, and it was a brilliant, really fascinating article by Marion K. Underwood uh, called "Glares of Contempt, Eye Rolls of Disgust, and Turning Away to Exclude: Nonverbal Forms of Social Aggression Among Girls." And what it was, what it was about, was basically the way in which girls used these silent, nonverbal, social, aggressive. Signals to hurt and to exclude people, so using nasty faces and gestures that showed contempt to other people, and that they thought that rather than like boy boys might be much more aggressive and much more physical that 's not to say that, that women um, that, that girls might couldn 't indulge in that kind of activity, but for various reasons, they used these alternative forms of aggression to sort of undercut um people the the whole tenor of the article though was about what to do about this um you know what do you do the fact that this is so widespread how do you actually how do you actually stop people doing it and if you tell girls that they need to sort of stop doing it and look smiley that in itself is a sort of really dangerous sort of patriarchal way of getting young girls to conform in particular ways. And so the challenge of the article thrown up to the feminist community was how you do this. Um, It got me thinking about then how contempt manifests itself in in history um, how facial expressions manifest itself in history, and I was starting to think about the kinds of representations that we might have of particular figures either in photographs, um, so caught you know in in photograph in profile, and I was thinking about prisoners photographs, people who were accused of particular crimes being photographs, pickpockets being being captured, and that kind of sort of contemptuous expression that they might have when they when they're confronted with their crime and with the authorities or in particular back to our example at the beginning contemptuous politicians who would be photographed but there's a lot more work to be done in that area methinks sam willis Hmm. good stuff fascinating um It does make you think of all the different
1: types of (laughs) contemptuous facial expression that are out there. There are are so many, but um, yet they they share the same message. I wonder what mine would be. I bet I've got one.
2: I'll have to ask ask other people. I'm I'm quite contemptuous of books sometimes. Hmm. I must admit, that's one of the things that I get very contemptuous about, which leads us back to our thing on reading. My own reading group, I'm quite contemptuous about the kind of stuff that we read Hmm. when I don't like it. Yes. Don't, don't surprise me. Very opinionated
1: um, about it. Hmm. That's, that's the purpose, I think, of, of, of such reading groups. I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of Australia, because um, I think this is really important and worth knowing. So this is contempt for, for indigenous populations. So um, Aboriginal Australians probably arrived in Australia 50,000 years ago, um, believed to have migrated on foot from Africa to Southeast Asia, and then somehow no one really knows how, by sea to Australia. And then um, there's some suggestion over the subsequent tens of thousands of years, you've got various fishermen and traders making it to China, uh, perhaps introducing the Australian wild dog, the dingo. Um, First Europeans to see Australia and perhaps map sections of the north coast were definitely Portuguese. The first to actually land uh, were Dutch in 1606. You then got the British... East India Company trading ship um uh, a ship there from the East India Company sighting Australia in 1622 but it's not for another 148 years before Captain James Cook arrives and then Australian history is changed forever. So 1788 is where the when Britain colonizes Australia. The first 6 years is peaceful but from 1794 for the next 140 years there are known to have been 270 separate massacres of Aboriginal people. And this was all done in state sanctioned, organized attempt to, to eradicate the Aboriginal people. And the, the killings were carried out by British soldiers, police, by settlers, and later on by, uh, by native police working under white officers. Um, it's, a, it's a very shocking story, particularly so in what happens in Tasmania. Um, There's a law that's passed in the 1820s, and essentially what it does is it removes penalties for the murder of Aborigines. Um, In 1830, there's this terrible military offensive known as the Black Line that's made up of British soldiers and local white settlers. And what they're trying to do is to confine the Aboriginal population to a very small section of the island, Um, a, a period of really shocking and terrible terrible violence. I mean, many settlers genuinely believe that the total extermination of the Aboriginal population was the only way to, to achieve peace. Um, eventually what happens is that by the beginning of the 1900s, because of executions, because of massacres, because of a forced assimilation and Christianization that follows, there were no remaining Australian Aborigines of entirely Tasmanian descent. Potentially the last one was Fanny Cochrane-Smith, who was also known to be the last fluent speaker of the Tasmanian language. Um, A fascinating recording was made of her in 1903, made on a wax cylinder, and um, it's, it's fascinating. You can hear her speaking her native Tasmanian language. And then was interviewed, and after hearing it herself... Hearing it back, she apparently said, "My poor race, what have I done?" Which is a really interesting comment because it, it, I suppose uh, we've got the contempt by the British um, colonizers for for the, the the local inhabitants, but here there's some kind of almost self contempt uh, from Fanny Cochrane Smith. My poor race, what have I done? And what she's referring to is she's listening to her speak the language she knows she is the last surviving person to be able to speak that language uh, and yet she married an englishman had 11 children with her and in doing so effectively ended the existence of um, pure blood aboriginal uh, native native um tasmanians so uh, an extraordinary story which which allows us to think about contempt in in a, a huge number
2: of ways Oh, My final example is going to be brief, but it is about contempt in relationships. Did you know that one of the chief causes for separation and divorce today is in fact contempt uh, of couples for one another? Very, very sad thing. But this that's not what I want to talk about. That's just a, a mere aside and a sort of hook into this, because what I want to talk about is courtly love and contempt, because I think... The tradition of courtly love revolves around this sense of disdain or contempt within relationships. And we can see this in Act 1, Scene 1, of Much Ado About Nothing, that brilliant comedy by William Shakespeare. And the starting scene is where we're introduced to all the characters and we're introduced to two very interesting people, Benedict and Beatrice Beatrice, uh, who by the end of the play have got married. But at the beginning, they are at each other's throats. And they are two of the most fascinating, witty, rebarbative characters that you could possibly hope to meet in Shakespeare. They're so playful. They keep getting on at each other. They're fighting. They have these really wild, literary sort of jousts with each other. And towards the end of the scene beatrice says to benedict i wonder that you are will still be talking signor benedict nobody marks you and he replies what my dear lady disdain are you yet living now the thing here is that if you think about the culture of courtly love this comes from Medieval period, it's the time of chivalric knights, it's the time of ladies and romance, and it all needs to be done in a highly sanitized way. So it's all about courtly love, it's about eroticism, but it's not about sex. Okay, so it's something that is contained, that is in a way pure. And so if you think about the way in which the structure works, you essentially have a knight and a lady and or a man and a lady and the man is attracted to the lady from afar he begins to worship the lady at a distance Uh, he declares his love his passionate devotion for her and of course the lady is pure and chaste and rejects the man and that's the point where the The disdain or contempt comes in because she rejects spurns his advances, and so it, in some ways is seen as contemptuous of her. It then moves into more wooing and oaths of virtue and sometimes the sort of love love lament sort of you know problems about you know not being a, able to be with her and and this leads to a whole sort of you know physical symptoms of lovesickness and unable to sleep and all of those kinds of things and then through heroic deeds of the night he's able to win the lady's hand and so they they get together and this in a very sort of basic form is the plot that is we find in Shakespeare's plays we can see it in something like Romeo and Juliet and you can see it in Renaissance sonnets by people like Shakespeare uh, or people like uh, Philip Sidney, for example. And what it it relies upon is setting up the lady in in question on a pedestal for her essentially to have contempt for the would-be lover in order only then for them to get together by the end of it. And I want to read us... Uh, An example of one of these sonnets that I was talking about from Sir Philip Sidney's Astrophil and Stella. And this is supposed to be, this is Sonnet 31, and it's supposed to be about the rejection of him by Lady Penelope Rich, about who I've written uh, in great detail with how sad steps o moon thou climb'st the skies how silently and with how wan a face what may it be that even in heavenly place that busy archer his sharp arrows tries sure if that long with love acquainted eyes can judge of love thou feel'st a lover's case i read it in thy looks thy languished grace to me that feel the like thy state descries, then even of fellowship, O moon, tell me, is constant love deemed there but want of wit? Are beauties there as proud as here they be? Do they above love to be loved, and yet those lovers scorn whom that love doth possess? Do they call virtue their ungratefulness? I think a great place to finish, Sam Willis. Wonderful stuff. Really beautiful. I like a bit of, bit of reading out of poetry like that. Thank you <laughs> all, guys,
1: for listening to our History of Contempt. Um, that was very good. Fascinating stuff. Um, do please follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in the history of the sea and maritime history and ships and naval history, do
2: please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you do not hold social media in utter contempt, I too am there at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. You can check us out on historiesoftheunexpected.com, our website. And we also have a Patreon page, should you so wish to patronise us. Meanwhile, thank you for listening. Take care and be well. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.